Phil Church, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Uh, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here, and I have the beautiful opportunity to open up um, Genesis chapter 15 with you. So if you have a Bible, would you open up there? And before we do that, what I want to do is share with you an opportunity that I am personally really excited about. Um, there are many of us in this church that listen to what's called the Q podcast. It's just a letter Q in podcast. And it's actually been really formative for many of us. And uh, there are many of you, we've had many conversations about um, the content. And Q is a Christian organization that um, is putting on the table questions that Christians should be asking and talking about. And one of the things they do amazingly well is they bring in great speakers and topics and they put people together and they allow us in a retreat. In, in a conference kind of format to not just receive, but to hear and to process together. And so they have a national conference uh, in Nashville. It's on October uh, 25th. It's a Thursday. It's two hours long. And uh, we, we are hosting one of the satellites here. Now, a lot of people have in their brain what it means to be a satellite host for something. And let me tell you actually what it means here, because it's a, a little bit different. Um, there are three national speakers that get broadcast in in this two-hour event. And um, actually, two of them are two of my favorite speakers. One is Bob Goff, and the other is Joe Saxon, incredible, incredible, um, really just love uh, how they are speaking into the American evangelical need in this time. And then um, we also have three local speakers and uh, people from our community from this area come in and talk about um, the theme of the conference in a way for our community to process together and to discuss. So when you come in this room, what will happen is there'll be round tables and uh, there'll be a bunch of people that you've probably never seen before. And uh, again, it's a two-hour event that's geared at um, bringing some of the best ideas and topics that as a church we need to talk about and then creating platforms to process these things together. And so you're coming to this room and it'll be a great opportunity to hear three national speakers and then three speakers from this area, again, that will speak uniquely just to our needs and our context. So the theme is called The Power of We. It's biblical hospitality and what it means for the church to be a light um, using our lives and our homes in this space, um, knowing that the times are changing and we need to figure out how to build a bridge for the gospel through love and hospitality. This is a theme of Village that's actually been really dear to us. Um, We did a a, a series a couple of weeks, a couple months back on this, and uh, we're going to continue to press this as a major theme in our church, uh, because if we don't get this, we're going to be missing what it means to bring the gospel to the next generation and to people who don't know Jesus. So this is going to be Thursday, October 25th. Um, Everything we do at Village is free. Um, This costs money to participate with what they're doing nationally. It's $25 a ticket. I think it's $15 a ticket if you get a student rate. If if that is all an issue for you to sign up for this, I will figure out how to get you in here for free. Um, But the value of just being with other Christians in this area um, is unbelievable and to process these subjects and to hear these speakers. So I want to invite you to do that. You can sign up on the hub, vcob.org slash hub. Um, And if you need any financial help with that, will you please, um, please, please let me know. All right, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. Um, is, before we get into this text, I want to get your brains in the right space, and I want to ask you a question about your own conversion experience. Um, I want you to imagine you get to have a conversation with pre-converted you, the you before you trusted in Jesus Christ. And here's the question that I want you to ask that you. Here it is. What is the main roadblock for you to really trust in Christ. What is standing between you and trusting in Jesus Christ as your God and your Savior? Um, what would the you before you came to Christ say? Now, um, generally speaking, 
um, I found that there are two major categories of roadblocks for people to trust in Christ. And the first category is what we would call an intellectual roadblock. Uh, it's the kind of person like a Thomas in scripture who says, prove it to me, prove it to me. Or they've got really big and legitimate questions that really deserve to be answered. For example, um, prove that God exists. Or if God is so good like you say he is, uh, uh, how can you explain or even justify evil in the world? Uh, that's called theodicy. Let's, uh, how do you even begin to justify this? Look at the terror and the trauma in the world. Uh, another one would be, um, so you want me to become a Christian, but if your God is so awesome, then why do his people stink so bad? Right? So if he's so awesome, and this is the question people are asking, so you want me to have a church family and let go of my past and parts of my past and come into this new community, but I don't even like these people. And so that's a real thing. There's this uh, intellectual roadblock that I I really do want to honor, and I think those questions need to be dealt with directly. But the vast majority of people are not in that category. In fact, what I found the vast majority of people are in what I would call a cost-benefit roadblock, meaning they're asking the question, uh, what do I need to give up socially physically, monetarily, relationally, historically, intellectually, to actually follow Jesus. Um, They're asking, is it worth it? Uh, And and let me even break it down. Most people struggling with the cost-benefit roadblock, um, they want to know two things. They want to know, number one, will I be safe and will I regret it? Will I be safe and will I regret it? Um, Am I going to be harmed or the things that I love the most going to be okay? And am I going to look back with a bunch of regret and say, I wish I had never, ever, ever done that? And I I think these are fair questions. And this morning, our outline is going to follow this. Um, Is it safe to follow God, number one? And then number two, are you going to regret it? Is this thing going to be, is it going to be worth it? We get to the life of uh, Abraham. And before he was Abram, he was called... Abram. And so this series goes from Genesis 12, 13, 14, and the beginning of chapter 15. We call this the conversion of Abraham because the New Testament looks back and tells us in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham, or Abram at this time, did not become an actual true follower of God until Genesis 15, 6. So the text we're ending with today, he finally is going to become a true follower of God. But what's happening in Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 is you have this pagan from Ur being asked by God to travel a thousand miles, uh, ultimately to trust him because he said so, it's all going to work out. And what you find is this guy learning to trust in God, like the man of faith Abraham that you all know didn't start out that way. The man of faith Abraham, before he was that, he was Abram and he was struggling and he didn't know if he could trust this God. He didn't know if this God was going to protect him. He didn't know if this God was safe. He didn't know if he was going to regret it. Uh, We even find that initially that what happens is he leaves um, Ur uh, uh, and he ultimately is supposed to go to the promised land, but he stops in a city called Haran. It's a family town. It's the town of his uncle. And what happens is he stops there. He doesn't even go to the promised land. And Acts chapter 7 tells us that God had to intervene and pull him out, take him out of Haran and say, finish the journey, man. I told you to go all the way to Haran. You find he, he, he leaves and he won't even leave behind his father who had to die in Haran. He takes with him his nephew Lot. He gets to the promised land and he's like, I'm not comfortable here. There's this severe famine. So he abandons the presence of God and the promise of God and he goes to Egypt. He's afraid when he gets to Egypt because he's afraid his wife is so beautiful, they're going to kill him and take her. So then he lies. And then God ultimately ends up dragging him back. And this whole time, uh, he is not yet truly a follower of God. He's figuring this out. And then he gets there and he says uh, to Lot, hey, do you want the promised land? Take it. If you want to take it. It's crazy that he would even be plausible that this guy would give up the promise of God. And the whole time God is pursuing him. 
And the whole time, the patience and the mercy of God are on full display. I mean, the character of God is all over the pages of this story. And the whole time, God is saying this to him, Abram, trust me. You will be fine. And when all of this is said and done, and you get to the end of your life, I just want to tell you this, you're going to have no regrets. This is going to work out. Trust me. Follow me. And what we're going to find right here is probably one of the most emotional stories for Abram. If you look back to your conversion experience, some of you had a story that uh, sort of happened over time, but there's some of you, there was like a moment of brokenness where the Lord just sort of wrecked you, brought you to your knees, ministered to your soul personally, and that is exactly what God is going to do to Abram here. And the first um, point in your notes, you can open up your notes, it's, um, am I safe? Number one, am I safe? Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Remember, Abram just got off the battlefield. Um, Abram was just met by Melchizedek, who likely, I think, was uh, a theophany, basically Jesus, an incarnation of Christ before he was a baby. And God himself ministers to Abram and promises him this. You're blessed. You are favored. I love you. I'm for you. Uh, meanwhile, this whole time, Abram's trying to figure out, am I really going to believe? Am I really going to trust? Am I really going to give my life to this, to this God? So verse 1 says this, after these things, after that battle with the kings we saw last week, after Melchizedek and the blessing of God, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And here's what he says, fear not. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I am your shield. Now, here's the challenge. I am uh, struck with a problem as I face you. My problem is um, most of you in this room and most listening will fill in the blanks of what it means that God is your protector or God is your shield or God is your covering, okay? And so here's what I mean by that. You mean it, you, you will likely interpret it like this. God is going to keep me safe, God is going to keep me comfortable. God is going to keep me from pain. And so when we think about God as our protector, as our shield, as our, the one who covers us, as our refuge, the idea is there won't be pain, there won't be discomfort. All of this is going to be very, very easy. And to your, to your benefit and my benefit, like I'm tempted to read it this way too. We grew up in the wealthiest nation that has ever lived in all of human history, right? Um, right now we have the easiest lives of anybody that has ever lived. We eat better than the kings of old. And of course, like we ought automatically are prone to say, God, if you love me, you'll keep my comfort and my standard of living and all this is going to be easy and fun. But I want to encourage you that the modern maternal way of seeing God as one who just says, be, be safe, be careful, is probably not the best way to see him. It's interesting when, and, and this is a good distinction I want to make here just so you're aware, um, I really don't hear my father or my father-in-law or my grandparents ever say this, be careful, be careful. But every mother I've ever had in my life, my actual mother, my mother-in-law, every woman in this room who counts you as my personal mother, right? Um, like, you, be careful, be careful, be safe, be safe, be safe, right? And that's good. There's something different about men and women. I want to read to you an article that I found unbelievably um, hilarious, and it is a study. Uh, it's a summary of multiple studies, and uh, I want to read this to you, and it's about parenting. It's the difference between moms and dads. Now, the fact that we required the government to pay money to conclude these things is ridiculous, but here we go. All right. Four decades of research and hundreds of studies have proven what should be obvious to everyone. A father's influence can determine a child's social life, grades at school, and future achievements. 
Good to know. Wonderful. But how does a father influence different from a mother's? Now, I want you to understand this is a liberal, um, left-leaning study review here. So this is like not... you would expect some different conclusions than, the, than what they come to, but I appreciate their honesty and their integrity in this. Isn't one parent, isn't one good parent enough? Quote, fathers and mothers have unique and complementary roles in the home, says Brett Copeland, a clinical psychologist in Tacoma, Washington, again, one of the most liberal parts of our nation. Quote, fathers encourage competition, independence, and achievement. Mothers encourage equity, security, and collaboration. Let me just go back to the first sentence. Four decades of research and hundreds of studies have proven what should be obvious to everyone. A father's influence is different than a mother's. Um, W. Bradford Wilcox, director at the National Marriage Project and associate professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, another very liberal left-leaning school, says the father's special input differs from mother's in at least four ways. Playing, (laughs) that's a funny word, encouraging, encouraging risk, protecting, and disciplining. By asking parents of 390 families how they play with their children, psychologist Rick Park, Ross Park, found that, quote, in infants and toddlers, father's hallmark style of interaction is physical play that is characterized by arousal, excitement, and unpredictability. Mothers, on the other hand, were more, quote, modulated and less arousing in their play, end quote. This became... Glaringly obvious to me, when my husband left home for a year and a half, now they're commenting on it personally, to work in Afghanistan, my modulated play was not cutting it. Several months into the experience, our three kids began complaining to me, quote, you never tickle us, end quote. (laughs) I had to take a page from my husband's playbook for a while. Emmanuel from the, uh, not Emmanuel, Emmanuel from the U.S. Children's Bureau, now the government is writing books and manuals for you so you can know how to parent, by the way. Good deal. Explains the impact of father's play this way. Quote, from these interactions, children learn how to regulate their feelings and behavior. Roughhousing with dad, for example, can teach children how to deal with aggressive impulses and physical contact without losing control of their emotions. Duh, right? (laughs) Do we not know this? Now, I want to tell you um, what happened last week. Uh, Last week, you ladies, um, about 60 of you went on our women's retreat. I hope you had an amazing time. I've heard great stories. Woo, go ladies. While the ladies are gone, the husbands and dads will play. So Saturday, uh, Saturday was kind of a neat day, and, and I had a friend um, text me and say, hey, my kids would love to play with your kids, but I've got this weird schedule. I said, bring them on by and go run your errands and whatnot. And so uh, I thought, this will be a blast. And, and so uh, all my kids and their kids are all outside, and, and about, I don't know, like an hour into it, a couple hours or whatever, my daughter comes in and says, dad, so-and-so is, is at the top of the pine tree. Two pine trees in my yard, and they're both over 50 feet tall, and they both go way above my house. So I'm thinking, cool. Like, <laughs> so I walk out, and I see this girl, and I, I yell. I said, um, do you climb trees often? Oh, yeah. I climb trees at the Kathy's house all the time. The Kathy's were in the first service, family from Village Church, and I'm like, well, if the Kathy's let you climb 50-foot pine trees, who am I? To? So I basically said, get down, come on down. I walked inside, and total confident that it was all going to work out, and it did. There was a problem. My six-year-old son is watching this. I look in his eyes. I look in his eyes and I say, there's a rule. The rule is you may not climb trees without me there. Of course, Dad, I would never do that. 
Then Matt Soul shows up, and Matt Soul's four kids come, and we're chopping down trees and limbs, and they're all watching it, and they're like, ah, it almost fell on me, and we're fine, and, and uh, that didn't actually happen. But Matt came over, we're chopping down limbs, and they're watching it, and it was a great day, and uh, my son is now playing with his three boys, and Colton, Matt's oldest son, comes up to me and says, I haven't seen X in a while. Do you know where he is? And I said, no, when did you see him last? And he says to me, when he fell out of the tree. My wife is about to have a heart attack. So, uh, so then, so I come inside and I see my son and he's sitting on actually our old pews. I, we have in our house one of the old pews from here. And he's sitting and he's sitting and I'm like, dude, are you okay? And he's like, I'm totally fine. And I'm like, I'm thinking, okay, internal bleeding check. And I'm like, no, for real, what hurts? And he's like, just my armpit. And he had this gash in his, in his armpit. And then I said, uh, you're going to be okay to play? He's like, yeah. And I was like, all right, man, get up. And he went out and he played, had a great day. Everything was fine. Fast forward, I think it might have been last night or two nights ago. No, last night because I was gone two nights ago. And so last night, um, my wife is looking. She says, oh, what's this under his armpit? And I said, oh, I think he fell. I I think I said out of a tree. (laughs) I don't know how much of this. I can't remember what I conveyed to her. And I'm like, the less, the better right now. And uh, so anyways... I'm, I'm, I'm cooking some meat on the grill, and my son's running out without his shirt, and he's got this cut on his chest. I hadn't seen it. And it's, it's thick. Like, it's, it's scabbing over. And, and I, I look at him, and uh, I say, hey, bro, like what, like, what did you do? Like, where did that come from? And he's like, you know, when I, when I fell, I said, is that from when you fell out of the tree? And I think Brian goes, what tree? <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, oh, my, oh my goodness. And this is my, my values, my, like, how I perceive this. I'm here creating cultures of risk and adventure, and, and it doesn't even bother me that much. Now, you know that I'm petrified of heights, but even that, I'm like, oh, it's, oh let's see how high she can climb. And, and, and there's a different mindset of fathers and mothers, is there not? And I think most people, when they think about the shield of God, the protection of God, here's what they say. Um, just like helicopter moms today, be safe, be safe, don't hurt anybody, we don't hurt anybody, okay, no, no pain, no discomfort whatsoever, right? That's what we think God is doing for us. And yet you open the pages of Scripture, and this is not at all what we see about God. Following God is not safe at all in the physical sense of things. And when God says, I'm going to protect you, um, he gives us no guarantees and no promises that the end result of this is that you are going to be comfortable, your body will be protected, and that everything about your comfort and complacency is going to be preserved just the way it is. And so here's what happens. God never makes these promises, and then life happens, and God calls us to really difficult things, and and the discrepancy of expectation and reality causes anger and bitterness toward God. And and the whole time, God's like, I never, ever promised you that when I said I was your shield, it meant I was going to shelter you from all things that are difficult in this life. Uh, Let me say it this way. I think the things that God has set out to protect us in are the following. Our minds, our hearts, our souls, and our future but I'm not going to put our body into that. And there are times when God will absolutely protect our bodies. But is that the guarantee for every single child of God for all time and all places? People read the Bible. The answer is no. The answer is no. I'll show it to you on the screen like this. And the moment we misunderstand God's promise of protection is primarily physical. We will miss what God is actually asking us with our lives. If you believe that God will never ask you to do something that will make your life harder, that will put your body or your finances or your comfort or your convenience in jeopardy, you will completely miss the boat of what God might be calling you to. If those are your rules, well, God would never want me to be unhappy. God would never want me to experience pain or harm or discomfort. God is the cosmic helicopter mother who is always sheltering me from all discomfort. You're going to miss 
a lot of these. Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul it gathers the Ephesian elders together. It's his last time seeing them, and he's got some really, really emotional, beautiful words for them. Here's what he says. Acts 20, 18. When they came to them, he said to them, you yourselves know how I served the Lord with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. They tried to kill him over and over again. Verse 20 says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Verse 22 says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except this, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. I'm sorry, but that is not the maternal helicopter mom God, is it? Right? That there is something very, very vulnerable that God may ask us or ask our children to walk into futures that might not be physically safe. Let's talk about Abram for a minute. What are Abram's threats? Um, Abram now is the strongest man in the region. He's a hero and he is a threat to everybody because everybody knows he's stronger than them. Right? This is a dog-eat-dog world. This is a world where the strongest win and you kill all the losers. And they are now know that Abram is stronger than them And probably what they will attempt to do eventually if God doesn't intervene is to build another coalition so that they can put him under their thumb. The influential king of Sodom is already trying to trap him. We saw that in the last chapter. God's promises to Abram are not probably a mystery to anybody. Here comes this foreign guy from a foreign land promised by one mysterious God that all of this land is going to be his and his descendants will be as many as the stars of the sky. People probably, like, understood this. He had hundreds of servants and slaves, and, and so it's plausible and probable that they talk and they spoke, and people in the land began to hear this. Abram and all the people of God who've ever gone before, they know this. They know that God is a shield, but it doesn't always look like we think it should look like. Do you remember Job? Um, of course you remember Job. Job is the guy that um, Satan came to God and said, of course he'll follow you. Of course he'll be righteous because you've put a hedge of protection around his whole life. You've heard this word, hedge of protection, and we pray, Lord, we pray for a hedge of protection. It comes from Job 1.10. And so Satan is accusing God here, and here's what he says. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. And what did the Lord do? The Lord removed his hedge of protection from Job's life. Did he all of a sudden stop becoming his shield? Did he stop becoming faithful? No. Then when God says he's our shield, there are some people he may bless you physically and your whole life may be very easy, but that is not the direct application for every believer throughout all of history. In fact, God is still your shield with, when he withholds some of the physical protection in your life. You, you've heard me talk about my chickens, um, and my chickens are, like at night, they're supposed to be inside of a, a, a square little door closer thing that's inside of a, a fence that's inside of a fence, right? Like my, my chickens, everything wants to eat them. My dog, I'm, I'm realizing more and more, my dog is yummy food for coyotes and for skunks and stuff like that, right? And so like my dog does not even, be, it doesn't even begin to understand the amount of threats coming after him in his life. My chickens, they're, they're smart for chickens, I think. I don't know, they're better than your chickens, so whatever. Um, <laughs> But my chickens have no idea how many things really, truly want to eat them alive, right? And I think about my children. Like, my, my kids have zero categories 
for how many sinister people, things, ideas, organizations are hunting down their minds, their hearts, their souls, and their behavior, right? And so my wife and I are like trying to be as vigilant as we can on a digital realm. We don't give our kids iPads um, or iPhones without our supervision. Uh, we watch and, and monitor everything they do. We're like pretty meticulous about it. And we're blocking off foes. We're meticulous about friendships and sleepovers and all this other stuff. And, and many of you moms, we're collaborating together and we're on the same team. We're trying to figure out how do we protect our kids and your kids together? And so is our home a safe place for your kids? Uh, apparently when we're climbing trees, it's not. Other than that, it's going to be great, right? But no, we're on the same page. Like our kids have no idea how many times we have stopped sinister forces from trying to take over their lives and ruin them. And they don't need to know, do they? They don't need to know. What, what is real is that we do it. What is real is that we do it. And we don't do it for applause. You're the best dad in the world. We do it because we love them. We do it because we love them. I think about our staff and, and um, our, our elders and our deacons. And uh, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many things we do just to protect. So, for example, um, you come to Village Church on a Sunday morning. And you bring your kids in the back. You put your number in. You get a little card. And they go back. And then they're taught. And they get a little snack. And they learn the word of God and the gospel. And adults are pouring into them. And then it's done. And God willing, they haven't cried too much. You haven't been summoned out of church to go take care of your child who's crying. But, and then you get them. And they go home. And, and it's easy. Okay? It should be easy. But what you don't know is how much security goes into that. You don't know the security breaks where we've seen them and we stop them and then we um, remove people. You don't see that. You don't see all the things that actually go on in the background checks and all the people who are vetted and how many people have to be in the room and child protection policy training. What you don't see is that right now there are men in this room and outside of this room who are ready to take you down should you threaten anybody in this room. You don't see that. You don't know that. And you don't need to know that. Well, you don't need, there's so many things on a daily basis that we do as a church just to protect people and again, we don't do it for applause. They don't come up to me afterwards and say, I just want to say things for all you do. It's not what we're saying it. We do it because we love you. I think about this past week, uh, if you don't know how our staff is run, we have what's called the core leadership team. And there are four of us and all of the staff and ministries report to us. It's Pastor Tim and Pastor Alex and Haley and myself. And, and so um, twice a year we go on a retreat and we just got back yesterday um, afternoon from a four-day budget retreat. Yay, the most fun retreat you could ever have in your life. Not kidding, it's 16 plus hours a day of processing and talking and counting and processing and evaluating. And it was interesting because I got back last night and uh, I was reflecting on the retreat and there are tears and there are high highs and low lows. And, and what I found is that as a, as a team, as I reflected on this, I don't know that we've ever seen God move as much But at the same time, I don't know that we've ever seen as many current internal and external threats as we do right now. And so we're processing so much of what we were talking about and processing is not about each other. We're all fine, right? Believe it or not, Amanda, despite Facebook Live this week, we're fine, right? The issue, the issue, become my friend on Facebook and you'll find out quick, okay? The issue that we're dealing with is we're coming together and, and there's legitimate, genuine brokenness over some of the threats that we're watching to the, to the village church and we're very protective of that. And so we literally are going through everything and figuring out how do we protect from some of these threats. I didn't realize how like almost mama bear and papa bear this whole time was of us trying to protect the church. And I think about our elders. There are, there are conversations you will never, ever know. There's conversations that two or three people maybe 
maybe in our church understand about the level of protection, doctrinal protection, crazy ideas that people want to bring into this place, people who are wolves that want access to you and access to leadership and to money. And, and so like we go out of our way to put these vigilant protective measures in. And we spent two years on a constitution and, and you know the top 10% of really the legal realities. I mean, like I think John Rocky and John Shales are the ones who really understand the depth of the legal protection that we're just trying to provide at Village Church. Like, I get it a little bit, but they, they do this stuff for a living. And, and so, like, I, I look at these guys, and I, and I think of, uh, of Paul again when he talks to the elders in Acts 20, and here's what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to all the elders and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And here, listen to this. I know, Paul says to these elders, he'll never see them again, but here's what he says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And the vast majority of people in churches all over America will have no idea what their elders and their staff and the deacons and then all the people praying and all the parents and everybody collaboratively, we come together and we protect there are some of you, uh, somebody said to me once, um, I've never told you about all the conversations I've had to protect you. And I will never understand it. I will never understand the depth of those conversations because I don't even know what I need. I don't even know the onslaughts that are coming at me. And everybody who's got a maternal or paternal instinct in them understands this. And we step back and we look at, we look at Abram. Abram is going to get onslaughts from every single angle. The once the evil one understands the affections of God have been set on this man to create the Hebrew nation, the Jewish nation to bring about the Messiah, all hell must have broken loose against this man and his family. And he will never understand until he gets to heaven all the ways that God protected him and shielded him. But it didn't mean that his life was easy. It didn't mean that he never experienced pain or heartache or that God never asked him to do unbelievably and unthinkably difficult things. And God asked him to go into, at the time, the most dangerous area in the entire world where tribal warfare was common and to go there and to live in this land with the promise that he was going to have it, knowing the only way that that promise was ever going to be fulfilled was through bloodshed and war. Like, don't tell me that God is asking Abram to do easy things because he's just not. Here's my second question. Is it worth it? I can tell you this. Are you going to be safe? Not in the American sense. I can tell you that God will shepherd over and protect your soul, your heart, your future, your mind. He will protect you. He will be a shield for you. But but will you have regrets? What if he does ask you to lose a lot? What if he asks you to lose your life? We're still in verse 1, believe it or not. (laughs) After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Um, Yahweh is uniquely and distinctly generous, contrasted with every other God that Abram had ever seen or experienced. I love, I love this, Hebrews eleven six. For whoever would withdraw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And again, the American in you says, more money, more comfort, more stuff. And the rewards are so much more meaningful and beautiful and deep than that. He goes on in verse two, but Abram said, O Lord God, 
What will you give me? Now, you need to understand this. He has not yet trusted him fully yet. He is still figuring out, are you safe? And am I going to regret this? Is this going to be worth it? We're going to be okay? Like, he's, he's figuring this out. He says, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Like, that's not, that's not an heir. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir, not a son. Let me just give you two insights about this question he's asking. Number one, it's innocent. This is not a bad question. It is 100% okay to observe the discrepancy between what you sense God is promising and your reality. And when the Holy Spirit or the Word of God give you the answer, then we move on in faith, trusting God in the difference. And this is a reality. There are many things where you said, God, I thought it was going to be like this, but it's turned out to be like this. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God have a way of ministering to us in this discrepancy and speaking truth to us. And the question is, will we leave the answer shaking our fist, wagging our finger, or bending the knee? The question is also optimistic. It is not a challenge. Here's what's happening. Abram's heart is getting more and more tender. Abram's heart is getting ready to truly trust in Yahweh. Okay, I, I get it. I, I trust you. I think, God. But how, how is it going to work out? Because I don't, I don't have a line of sight to how I get from here I am today to what you say is going to happen. My wife is old. I'm old. This whole having a child thing feels impossible. Any other God, any other God would have looked at Abram and said, shut your mouth. Do what I say or else. And what I love about Yahweh in this moment is that he is speaking just to the most tender parts, the most sensitive parts of this man's story. He knows his deepest fears, his deepest pains, and God ministers to Abram personally. I want you to see what happens. Verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Abram, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Let's just let's peel back for a moment. The greatest probably pain point for this man was the infertility of his wife. In this culture, to not have children, to have no... Uh, the, there's very few things to compare it to from our culture to help you understand the weight of this for their culture. Decades, decades before... Uh, he dealt with the wound, he dealt with the pain, he covered it up, he probably shut it aside. Now the Lord is poking at this old wound, this pain point, this point of frustration. If you love me so much, why would you take away from me the one, the one singular thing in this world that I don't just want, I need? And why would you put my wife through this and my husband through this? And, and God is poking. And he says, your very own son shall be your heir. And then in verse 5, I'm not sure what happens. It seems something has shifted here where um, somehow God has taken physical form with Abram. And I imagine that Abram and God are having this very emotional moment. And so what happens is, is God says, Abram, will you, will you just come here for a moment? And I love this. It says, he brought him outside. And he takes him outside and he says, look. Now, you're tempted to read this quickly. And what I want you to do is just is take the time of the real weight of the emotion and actually the amount of time it would take to do this. Abram, look, what do you see? Stars. 
number them. And I wonder if God just stops and says, start, sure. Count as high as you can. And this feels like torture. Because what you have in your heart is disappointment and pain and hurt, and the Lord is ripping open the wounds. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. And obviously the answer is, is he can't. Have you ever seen a woman broken through infertility get the news that she's pregnant? It's amazing, right? It's like, are you kidding me? Have you ever have you seen the face of a parent hearing the treatment worked on their child? What happens? Alligator tears. Have you ever seen the face of a spouse when the surgeon comes out and says they're alive? I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on with Abram. He hasn't said a word since he asked the question. And God is just ministering to him. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram says nothing. The only image I have of Abram at this point is he's on his knees. He's crying. The Lord looks into his heart. The man doesn't say a word. And here's what the text says. And he believed the Lord. He didn't have this huge confession. The Lord ministered to his most deepest pain point, his deepest need, and he promises him, and he ministers to him, and he encourages him. Doesn't say a word, and isn't this just what the Lord does to you? Like, you get, the end, you get to the end of yourself. And you're like, I have nothing, and he meets your deepest soul's need. It's beautiful. This is not like the pagans who ask you to sacrifice your firstborn children and then make you follow through with it. You're going to see this. God is going to take Abram on a journey to prove to him, I am not like these other gods. I am not like these other gods. I am infinitely more compelling, infinitely more merciful, infinitely more gracious. Infinitely. And then here's what it says. The Lord's response And he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Romans 4 tells us this, that this was the moment of his justification, his forgiveness, his salvation. In this moment, Abram doesn't say a word, and God declares him legally righteous, legally forgiven, legally his child, heir of all that is God's. And next week, the next thing God does is he makes an unconditional promise to him that is not contingent on his behavior and says, I am committing my future to you forever and ever and ever. That is amazing. This God is not like all the other demented and demonic versions of God that people come up with. So what? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and here's what he says. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Abram. I get all your hesitations. I get it. I get it. And to be honest, it's not going to be, quote, safe, but you're going to be fine. And you're going to get to the end of this thing. And you are not going to regret it. You might be in this room, and I'm confident there are a handful of you who have never trusted in Jesus yet. And your issues are not the intellectual roadblocks. Yours are the cost-benefit roadblocks. And you're trying to figure out what's the cost. Uh, I'm going to be really honest with you. I like being honest with people on the front end. It's going to be hard. You're going to lose a lot. Some people will cut you out. People will think you're weird. The Lord will ask you for the rest of your life to do incredibly difficult things, and I cannot promise you that you'll be physically safe. But I can promise you that the Lord will always be with you, and he will be your shield. And I can promise you that when you get to the end of your life and you look back, no matter how it ends, 
that you will say I would do it over again every single time. There's some of you in this room and you have given your life to Christ, you've trusted him, but then you've said no more. Uh, I've got my heaven card, I go to church, I tithe sometimes and I serve once or twice a year. But God, no more, it's too hard, it's too painful, don't ask of me anything else. And I think in this moment the Lord would say to you, it's, it's time to release, don't be afraid. And you're right, it's gonna be hard. You're right, someone's gonna hurt you. You're right, someone is gonna offend you. You're right, I'm gonna ask you to do really hard things. You're right that actually engaging in a church family is gonna be excruciating at times and it's gonna be high highs and low lows and you're right, a lot is gonna be asked of you and you're right that it's gonna cost you and you're right, people will think you're weird and you're right that things are gonna change. Yes, but it's worth it. And the Lord would summon you and say, you put up these arbitrary thresholds of how far you'll let me take you, kill them, take them down, follow me, follow me. And here's what I know, the Lord is tender. I mean, when Abram ran to Egypt, remember how humiliated he was? Like, if you run and run and run and run, the Lord will humble you. But when you're really at this point of, you know what, I'm ready, he is so appropriate and he is so kind and he is so gracious and he's so merciful and he makes meaningful true promises that speak to the heart of all of our reservations. There's a point in this where I thought, you know, there's a hundred ways to end this sermon, and I just kind of want to encourage you. I want to say to you two things. I'm left here, and I'm just like, God, on the one hand, I'm Abraham. I'm the moron who runs away, and you just pursued me and pursued me and pursued me, and you're so gracious, and you're so kind. And so on the one hand, I just want to leave you and say, isn't your God amazing? On the other hand, I want to say to you, there's some people who the Lord is pushing you and saying, you need, to, you need to do something different. Follow me into something much, much harder than what is. I don't have a script for that. It's between you and the Spirit. And so I really just sense there's kind of just two different like, messages here. And one is, follow me. Not me, Michael, God. And the other is, be so grateful. Because all these religions out there who demand and oppress their gods are demanding and oppressing our God gives us life and is our shield, and we'll never know the half of it, will we? We will never know all the things he does for us. And when we get to see these little glimpses of his shieldness, his protection over us, we're like, ah, our God is so good to us. And it's in that spirit I want to close, I want to pray, I want to go before the Lord, I want to prepare our hearts to celebrate communion, because our God is really amazing. Let's pray. Father, for all of us in this room who Maybe just today we needed to see you save someone else to be reminded of how much like Abram we are and how amazing you've been to us. And Lord, we do confess, it's really easy to get numb to. It's really easy to think about the gospel and get used to it, to become entitled to a degree. And I get that. But God, would you give us a new, even in this moment, just gratitude? And Lord, there's some of us here who you're, you are beckoning us and I want to thank you just for how personally you minister to us. I want to thank you how good you are to us. I've got to pray for the men and women, the students, the children in this church, even today, that just even sense that you're asking them to trust in you and they've got these roadblocks. God, I pray you would speak to their hearts and their souls and give them the faith and the assurance to believe it will be okay, and this will not be a decision they regret. And Lord, for those of us who really do need a kick in the rear, but Lord, would you just speak to our hearts? Would you do it like you do it so kindly, so directly, so gently sometimes? And would you remind us that it's going to be okay? 
and no one in the end regrets following you even to the darkest places. Thank you for being our shield and our protection and thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness to do what you promised which was to send the Messiah and to deal with our sins. We love you and we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.